there's a lot of books about making money and there's a lot of books about happiness, but there's not that many that are either written by the same person or even put the topics next to each other and say, you know, here are the problems that making money will solve. Here are the problems that they won't. Here's what to do about the problems that aren't money problems or aren't solvable through money. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to Going Deeper There in Watson. My guest today, Eric Jorgensen, is the author of the book, The Almanac of Naval Ravikant. Naval is a insanely successful startup founder and investor and a bit of a modern philosopher. Eric has distilled all of his best ideas down into a single book because Naval hasn't done us the service of writing a book himself. I found the book fascinating and the strategy behind writing it equally interesting. Eric has parlayed his own success as the member of a founding team of a startup and the writing of this book into his own early stage venture fund, a course focused on teaching people how to use more leverage in their life and career, and a whole lot of other interesting opportunities. We get into all of it in this conversation. Here is Eric Jorgensen. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Eric, welcome to the podcast, man. I'm excited to be talking with you. I'm excited to be talking with you. Thanks for having me. So I want to start off, you've written a book, The Almanac of Naval. It's really good. I've got all sorts of notes in there that we'll, we'll get into over the course of this conversation. I see um, sticky notes coming out of there. That, that makes me happy. That's a good feeling. Yeah, <laughs> It's legit. Uh, but as a starting point for anyone that might not know who Naval is, why take the, the months, the arduous months and years to write a book distilling his wisdom, his insights for a larger audience? Yeah. I mean, I had learned a lot from Naval. I've been following him for maybe like 10 years and I had just learned so much from him over such a huge swath of like topics and time. And he did this amazing interview on uh, the Knowledge Project with Shane Parrish. And I listened to it like three or four times and I just kept getting struck by how timeless some of the wisdom was that was in there. Um, you know, I, I'd followed Naval for a long time on Twitter. I'd learned, you know, how he built a startup and how he invests in startups and some of that kind of like tactical stuff. And when he started sharing what he was learning uh, as he became a little more like focused on philosophy and playing a little bit of a higher level, longer term game with his with his company, AngelList, I got, it just became more and more timeless. And I started feeling like the message didn't fit the medium or it transcended the medium. And I would hate for it to get stuck in like podcasts and Twitter, which are these like really ephemeral medium. And so I started thinking about how to kind of capture that information and, and share it with other people and make it really accessible and easier to spread. Uh, and at the same time, sort of go through an amazing learning process myself and figure out, you know, organize this information and make it easy to reference and easy to come back to and curate it and just sort of put it together in a way that it was a little bit more easy for me to use from just for myself and, and the other people that I thought might be interested in it. And I think that's just a really cool way to approach any project where there's like levels of winning that can occur. Mm -hmm. and, and this is obviously one of his lessons, but, you know, worst case scenario, this is someone who is an insanely prolific investor, successful entrepreneur, uh, founder, and by all accounts, seems to be a pretty well-adjusted, happy dude. Yeah. And, you know, it, if people watch a, a, a not a comic book, a, a cartoon, they used to like the devil and the angel on someone's shoulder. If you could yeah. build your own Naval for your shoulder, 
shoulder when you're trying to make a decision, that's going to benefit you regardless of how many books get sold, regardless of what other opportunities come your way. hundred percent. That, that's actually something that I always try to have with my projects. Um, you know, there, I've done a number of side projects through the years and I always tend to focus on ones where I, I think of it like, uh, like plateaus, like every project tends to plateau at some point and you just want it to be, you want multiple positive steps that like you're happy, even if you only reach like step two out of 10 or step four out of 10. And it's not like there's no benefit until, you know, three years in and like, you know, $2 million in sales or something like that. You want every day that you spend working on something to be, you know, positive as often as you can so that you're enjoying the process and, um, getting something out of it, no matter how far the project goes. And, um, specifically to the, the study of Naval, really interesting. You say right at the beginning of the book that he is both wildly successful and by all accounts seems to have happiness figured out. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is a really interesting thing that does not necessarily go hand in hand, despite some people's, um, uh, suppositions. So how did you realize that? And how did you, when did you come to the decision or what did you learn about putting those two things into their own distinct buckets? It is interesting. It didn't really happen that way. Like what happened was I started with just like all of Naval. So I started with like his whole exported Twitter feed. There's like 20,000 tweets. And I just, I filtered for quality. And then I sort of categorized everything and I ended up with like a bunch of buckets, frankly, I ended up with like education and future predictions and cryptocurrency and like all kinds of stuff and investing advice and all this stuff. And I sort of built like the first version of this book was like three or 400 pages long. It was enormous. And through a bunch of different sort of like conversations and curations, I edited it down to be like, oh, this is, these are his thoughts on happiness. And these are like the principles of wealth building. And those were just the things that resonated with absolutely everybody. And so that's what sort of ended up becoming the final book. And it wasn't until you kind of sit there and look at it that you're like, oh, like this actually is a really unique mix of topics. Like there's a lot of books about making money and there's a lot of books about happiness, but there's not that many that are either written by the same person or even put the topics next to each other and say, you know, here are the problems that making money will solve. Here are the problems that they won't. Here's what to do about the problems that aren't money problems or aren't solvable through money. Or here's how to like apply, you know, your intelligence and discipline that you cultivated by trying to learn to make money and making money in your career or your, you know, artistic pursuits or whatever into, you know, he's got to channel that and direct that if your actual goal is to become happier. And it ended up being this kind of interesting, I mean, a, a huge range of people. Um, it's really interesting to see the people that are attracted to it. And I, I do believe like anybody on earth can pick this thing up and get something useful out of it. Like that is a meaningful bar to me and something that I wanted to accomplish. Um, it's fulfilling to kind of see, see that unfold in real time with just the, among the variety of people who reach out with, with positive feedback or that I just see sharing it online. I'm really curious about its its impact on you though, uh, particularly, I, I guess this, this might be a difficult question, but because self-assessment is difficult, but as the author, as the person who was so intimately involved with this material, do you think it has had more of an impact on your skills at making money or your skills at being happy? Uh, it's interesting. It's, it has definitely helped both. I probably, it has helped both. And it's like really a question of what lane my head is in. Like I, I still, 
unfortunately probably spend more time thinking about like wealth and my career and my business than I do focused on being happy, but it has made it me better at making progress kind of no matter which lane I'm focused on, but I have not yet mastered the kind of like get your head out of one of those lanes and like look at the big picture always see the big picture and like you know be able to like look at both lanes next to each other and see the pool for what it is and that i'm still kind of like working on maintaining that perspective at all times like literally just before we started recording i was like pissed i was table flipping mad about like waiting on hold to deal with some bank about some stupid thing that didn't end up making progress at all and i was like like it, it was an embarrassment by like Naval standards of happiness and peace and calm retention and all of these things, which is just like all to say, like you can know it all, but it's very difficult to have it there in your hand when you need it proactively. Um, so I'm better at it than I was. It's a, you know, a journey of trying to get better every day at recalling it and applying it when you need it. Yeah. I, I mean, it's a very Buddhist principle, but one of the lines that I've heard you know, regurgitated so many different times. Desire is a contract with yourself to be unhappy until you get what you want. And, yeah. you know, you can say something like, it's very simple. We can all nod along as we hear something <laughs> like that. And then, you know, you start desiring something and you're not really super conscientious of it. And you're swirled up into this, you know, whirling dervish of, uh, of, of needs and, and yeah. disagreements. And all of a sudden it's, you're missing the forest of the trees. Yeah. Yeah. And it's easy to forget that that's what it is. And it's easy to, even if you know that that's what it is, let, uh, you know, let desires kind of crawl into your ears, um, and, and take root. And then it's hard work to get them dislodged and kick them out. And yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a process. And, you know, it, it's funny. It's kind of like the, um, I don't remember who, who is the, um, psychologist who's like knowing about all of these sort of, uh, foibles, the human foibles of misjudgment as like, doesn't actually make you that much better at avoiding them. Like you, you yeah. can know all about them. You can study them for years. You can write them all out. You can write a book about them and it really barely changes your ability to deal with them. Like it's almost a different skill learning about it versus applying it. I think, I think Kahneman and Munger have both said different versions of the same okay. thing where they're yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you know, we're, we're masters of, of being able to articulate all these biases or whatever. And it's like, mm -hmm. I still fall prey to them. I'm just marginally better than the other folks around me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, it does help to be able to label it right. And to see it happening and understand the cause and effect. But, you know, if anybody tells you like, that it doesn't happen to them anymore. Like, I, I don't know that that is a state of enlightenment that's out, out, out of reach for me as of yet, and, and probably most other people, but just gaining awareness of the feedback loop, I think is, is a huge step forward. Certainly. Speaking of feedback loops on the money making side of things, leverage is the thing, at least for me, the takeaway that he points to as not only the key to amassing wealth and this confidence that he has that, you know, Naval says, you know, I could do it again in five to 10 years if you dropped me off somewhere without any sort of, you know, connections or, or pre-existing reputation. Can you talk about that? I know that you've, you've translated that into a course that you now teach, but how do you introduce people to the idea of leverage? Because I think a majority of the working world, you know, you're not, you're not living in that domain. Yeah, you're not leaving that domain. You're not rewarded for having leverage. You're not really encouraged to think that way in most jobs. Um, so, I, you know, I'm not surprised that it's like a little bit of a lost art to a lot of people. You know, I was, I grew up in a small business house. You know, my dad ran a business that my grandfather started, and we were always sort of, sort of entrepreneurial and thought like uh, business owners and investors. And then I came into the startup world where you're kind of always trying to, 
grow, grow, grow and reach higher scale. And so I feel a little lucky that I was always in an environment that rewarded sort of learning leverage and being more efficient and achieving, accomplishing more with the same resources. So my introduction to the idea is like, you know, th we, we, some people have preconceived notions about like financial leverage or, or ha to have leverage over somebody. And that's not what this is. Like just picture a lever, picture a teeter totter. And it's almost only the strongest people can lift up, you know, 800 or a thousand pounds like dead off the ground, but with a 20 foot lever, almost anybody, almost any human could just very simply sort of like push on one side and the lever lifts up the really heavy weight on the other side. And that lever is a thing that lets you achieve more, lets you do more work, like in physics terms, um, apply more force. And that as a mental model, like there is all kinds of tools around us or processes or mindsets or technologies that let us do the equivalent of lift 800 or a thousand pounds every day. Um, Sometimes it's hiring somebody. Sometimes it's putting a new like formula into Zapier. Sometimes it's recording this podcast. Um, you know, it's nearly impossible to talk to a thousand people one on one during the day. But we can record this podcast, and it can very easily reach a thousand people over the course of the next month. And that is something that you know, before podcasts or you know, sort of digitally digital media, that would have been like the equivalent of a human deadlifting a thousand pounds is like, that is an incredible accomplishment. Um, but if you apply the right lever to the situation, you can get this, you can get a lot more done. And so you can sort of shift your mindset into, you know, it is, it is part prioritization, part understanding like the high leverage way to act, partly understanding the tools and options available to you between outsourcing or delegating something between, you know, finding the right tool to get the job done between solving a problem with money and, and just reframing what you're trying to accomplish into something where you can, you can apply the right lever to the problem. And it just sort of gets you thinking in this new way and helps you focus on I don't know, this, this art of like really high efficiency problem solving, you know? I, I was just I was texting with Andrew Finn, who was a guest on my podcast, and one of the, we were talking about wait, but why before we started recording, and he's a one of the co-founders there, and he was like, I think entrepreneurship is just like the art of solving the highest leverage problem over and over and over again, and we kind of like chatted through it. I was like, I think that's a really good insight, actually. Like, it's knowing. You know, he his his work is mostly buying small businesses and operating them. And so his, for him, it's like, you know, the highest leverage work is finding an entrepreneur who wants to sell a business. And then the highest leverage work is like, oh, I have to go figure out financing. And then the highest leverage work is due diligence. And then the highest leverage work is, you know, maybe closing and transitioning and managing that business. Or maybe it's finding new capital. Maybe it's hiring someone new. And his focus is constantly shifting to do whatever the work is that will have the greatest long-term payoff given his opportunity set at the time um, and being resourceful about what that is. Like, it's not just using the tools on your desk. It's, you know, where can I go to add a tool to my arsenal to get the best thing, the work towards the best long-term outcome. I think this is a really interesting definition. It's a really interesting way to think. And there's, you know, infinite levers out there to go use and infinite problems to solve. And, uh, the, the people that we admire and look up to that are accomplishing these superhuman things, you know, whether they talk about it as leverage or not, are, are masters of going through this process of like being resourceful, focusing on the highest return opportunity of solving the problem in the most efficient way 
in the longest term way that requires the least maintenance, that requires the least cost over and over and over again. And you end up with this kind of array of levers all around you. This is why we call the course like building a mountain of levers. And that's what I've started. That's how I've started to think about my work and my focus over time is like, you know, what am I trying to accomplish? What's the highest leverage way to solve it? And like, and let's iterate. And how would you recommend to folks who don't feel a sense of any leverage? They're not even on first plate base. They're still on home plate as it pertains to actually doing that. Is it, is it a focus? Is it a categorization question? Is it a studying the people who do it well? Because I, the, this, the reason I, I would push up against the studying the people who do it well thing is, you know, someone like Elon Musk, who is, you know, going to potentially raise yeah. $40 billion to go acquire <laughs> one of the world's yes. consequential social media platforms. There's not a ton that I can go take for myself um, and, and apply to my own life, at, at least in terms of the, the stage of games I'm playing. So that starting point for folks that want more leverage, a la Naval, a la what you're doing with your course. Yeah. I, so there's a few answers to this. I think um, the first is is just trying to find the mindset and, and like starting small, right? Like you don't have to use giant levers out of raise $40 billion out of the gate. Like, and think about this. I think the first step is to just find an environment where, where leverage benefits you, where applying leverage benefits you. A lot of people in their work, you know, if you have a typical kind of salary or hourly job, getting more done faster, more efficiently doesn't benefit you. It benefits your employer, but like, why do you care if you made a few more coffees as a barista this year? Or uh, like, why do you care if, you know, if you work at a startup, you should sort of care in the abstract that your stock becomes worth more and the company does well and you solve better problems and you grow in your career. But a lot of jobs, frankly, don't reward thinking and leverage. So the first thing I think is find an area of your life or get yourself into a, a role where where you're rewarded for the positive application of leverage. That might just be in your home life. That might be focusing on, you know, automating some of the stuff around your house, whether it's physical stuff or, you know, your paperwork or your reporting or your tax accounting, like whatever it is, thinking about setting up automatic deposits, automatic bill pay, like start with tiny tactical stuff um, that you have to do every day or every week or every month and find ways to set it up so that you never have to worry about it again. You don't even have to think about it. And then think about, you know, do the, do the napkin math on what your return was from, you know, setting up a crypto miner that you just plug in and earn, you know, 20 bucks a month from, or the, you know, automated timer that you bought for your lighting outdoors, or when you bought, you know, some crypto and staked it and you just don't think about it, or you're automating your deposits or you don't have to spend 10 minutes sitting down with a new bill that you get every month. Like start with those small things and then take a time to appreciate how much more like operationalized and accomplished your future self is. And then just keep rolling that snowball in work. I mean, the, the case, the use, the case that we used in the book is, um, that a real estate agent is like kind of an average job, but it's also a very leveraged environment. Like you can accomplish 10 times or a hundred times what the the real estate agent next to you does most sales is like this and you're rewarded for that so if you figure out how to automate your process if you figure out a better tool that lets you send 100 emails in the time that your coworker can send 10 all of a sudden you're making maybe 10 times as much and you'll start to feel the benefits of those things quickly and start to be like you know i, I started to get really excited about leverage in my life after this book came out and on the one hand i loved learning about leverage and studying it but it was a fucking incredible feeling to wake up and look at 
I, you know, sold 30 books in my sleep. Like that is a tangible, palpable, exciting feeling that made me want to chase that. I was like, oh my God, I got to, I want to invest this cash so that the cash is earning money while I sleep. And then I want to start working on another book. And then I want to create the course that like, will do this. And I want to study this process even more and find all the tools that I'm not even thinking about that will help me accomplish more. And so, uh, you know, I, I maybe summarize leverage as like, it's the art of accomplishing more. It's the art of increasing your impact, do more with less time. Like your time is the ultimate denominator for all of this. And if you use your time well now, the you of tomorrow or next year will be doing a lot more network, either earning more or meeting more people or having greater impact or helping more people or reaching a greater audience as a result of the work that you do today. And now I think of my life's work, not as building a company or building assets or anything in particular. It's just, I want to, I want to continuously increase my leverage for myself, for my family. I want to operationalize the stuff that we have to do inside of our, our personal lives. I want to create content that scales that can serve serve hundreds of thousands or millions of people i want to create investment vehicles that can compound capital for myself and for investors i want to fund startups that provide jobs and distribute technology that are creating their own leverage for their customers um and it's just totally changed a lot of how i look at the world and prioritize the things that i spend time on it's another quote from the book the internet has massively broadened the space of possible careers most people haven't figured it out yet yeah yeah. I mean, the, the corollary to that that's also in the book is, you know, um, the best person at anything gets to do it for everyone. Like whatever your niche is, if you're the best in the world, you know, the universe, the internet lets you reach that whole universe of people. And if you, especially if you have a digital project product, serve a lot of them. If I become the best person in the world at teaching leverage, you know, I may have 10,000, a hundred thousand or 10 million students going through this this course that can serve all of them in parallel that are all people who want to learn about, you know, these playbooks and these tactics and this mindset. And you've tied this all to your name, which is another pr uh, principle from the book is which to take accountability and to make this investment with your name backing it, that leads to responsibility, equity, leverage being accrued to you. And, and a form of that, we'll talk about your investment fund in a little bit is the you know potential to now invest in a company because like hey we need to apply leverage this guy can probably help us yeah. think through some of those problems interestingly your second almanac according to your leverage map is going to be about <laughs> balaji srinivasan yeah. and where naval says do it all under your name and you know accrue that accountability equity for yourself balaji is one of the front uh you know at the front of the wave of talking about pseudonyms and these alternative names, your earning name, your, you know, your personal name, so on and so forth. As you're kind of working on the Balaji book and thinking about this principle from Naval, how do you see those two playing with one another, those two ideas? Yeah, it's a really interesting tension, I think. And I can absolutely kind of try to talk to both. I can see both sides of them. And I think it's a little a little cultural, a little subcultural. Um, you know, Balaji is, uh, people call it like the archbishop of crypto or something. So he, he is like far future. And that's why I love studying him, right? He's he's His head is 10 or 20 years in the future. And the future tends to catch up to him slower than he thinks it's going to in a lot of cases. So maybe what he's predicting actually happens in 40 or 50 years um but maybe it happens in 10 or 20 i don't know but yeah he, he talks a lot about th this totally pseudonymous economy and the crypto will let us transfer not just like hide our true identities and do work as a pseudonym but transfer k karma or credit or 
um, proof of work, basically like your resume can be transferred between anonymous, unconnected pseudonymous accounts without revealing who you are. And so I could see perhaps that someone's been a developer for 20 years without knowing or, or even that they wrote specific programs without being able to backtrace who they actually are, which is a really interesting and kind of compelling thing for, you know, removing unconscious bias, for working with people all over the world, for sort of giving anyone in the world access to the, the meritocracy of like working on the internet. And that's a beautiful thing. I, I think Naval's claim on that side of things is a little more rooted in this kind of social contract that we have and our like evolutionary also know that like when it comes time to put like a lot of money in play i actually feel better with a lot with projects where i can see the person and their name and their background and hear their story and that may be just an evolutionary sort of path dependent thing that we have but i think it's a really strong bias in humans to trust other humans that we can somewhat relate to and see and try to build a connection with and and the social contract of like you know we want to know we can see an unbroken string of trust behind that person and and their work without uh if we're going to invest in them and they feel some social accountability to uh it's interesting to write these two books like back to back and see where they agree and where they disagree because biology of all are um for all the overlap in their audience um these very different views on, on how the world is going to unfold Absolutely. I want to get into the uh, Eric Jorgensen, Eric Jorgensen production function here for the kind of back nine of the, the interview. And I want to ask specifically about this technique for building your own optionality career opportunity via someone else's work. So distilling down, you know, Naval stuff that you had seen in maybe tweet forums and podcast interviews to make it accessible. Balaji, you know, he, he does different forms of writing, but, you know, re reassembling that into a consumable form is a really interesting idea. I've experienced this in a microwave. We made a video about the business of the Morning Brew, which is an enormous mm. newsletter with like three and a half million subscribers or something. And we made this when literally they had less than 2000 subscribers to their YouTube channel. So Whoa. you have this website and this brand that has an enormous audience and then yeah. people type it into YouTube and there's like no results. So you're partially playing an arbitrage game, mm -hmm. but you're also partially displaying your capacity to competently analyze something that people admire and they they take get value from but maybe they can't necessarily articulate why or haven't just spent the calories that you have to make sense of it. So, can you just talk a little bit about that specifically as a kind of personal reputation uh, opportunity set expanding strategy that I think I, I'm a believer a lot more people could deploy. Yeah, um I I, I kind of stumbled on this somewhat accidentally like i i would love to tell you that i'm like smart enough to master plan this but that's not really <laughs> how it happened like so I, the the proof points that i have i mean i guess i've been doing this for a little while like my side projects my first side project that, that sort of like garnered an audience was um uh, was called evergreen and it was a it, the ethos of it was like was i guess a little similar in that like there's this timeless content that's getting created online in these blog posts and a lot of times it's lost because Google gets gamed and SEO is a little unreliable. And um, so you have these amazing posts by like the example I like to give is Mark Andreessen's product market fit post, which is almost like, I don't know, 20 years old now or something, 15. But it's like the seminal piece of content about this concept. 
and unless someone personally recommends it to you, you're not likely to stumble across it. So the concept of Evergreen was just, I had an email list, it was small, like just sent it out to a few, a dozen friends, maybe at first. It was like, hey, I want to learn about network effects this week. Everybody send me the best thing you've ever seen, watched, listened to, like just recommend me a piece on this topic. And it came in and I would try to learn everything and synthesize it and write a post that sort of summarized the key points and link back to the original material. So you could spend 10 minutes learning the overview or three hours reading through all of the best resources I found. And it was just an, it was another form of curation. It was another kind of transfer between mediums. And I just got a feel for how much value is created by curation and by pulling, you know, a really key pair, few paragraphs from a book into this, into a blog post and sharing it and letting that get shared on Twitter. And um, it's a big internet, man. And people just hang out in a ton of different places. And that gave me, I guess, a little more confidence in the power of curation when it came to do something like this book, where it's like, you know, Naval's across all these mediums. He's got, you know, there's well over a million words of source material. But some of my favorite books are by Peter Bevelin or Max Olson. Like they are themselves compilations of like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger's letters or their meeting notes or things like that. It's just, um, you know, it's transferring medium, it's changing context. And I've gotten a lot of value out of those products before. And so I had a lot of respect for them. And, um, and I liked learning the stuff. I liked spending time swimming around in Naval's, you know, podcasts or Twitter or whatever. And uh, I figured it was good for me to just experience more of that and have a form that I was trying to shove it into. But once you see the pattern, to your point, like it's kind of everywhere, right? Like brain pickings basically built a way bigger business than anybody you could believe by pulling key highlights from Kindle books and putting them on a blog. And then... You know, that you got, I mean, basically the meme accounts on Instagram that are huge are just like finding funny shit on Twitter and sharing it on Instagram or finding funny stuff on Instagram and posting it on TikTok or finding like over and over. There's, there's, I was watching a YouTube channel last night that was just like compilations of scenes from movies. Or you get somebody like um, Nerdwriter or something who's like taking a very basic, probably, it's probably not news to anybody in film school, but like, putting it on YouTube and putting some like cool movie references in there and has a huge following and built a great business and it's super entertaining. And I'm sure he's learned a lot doing that too. Um, so there's, there's a ton of opportunities and, and real value to be created by transferring stuff between mediums um, and in making it more timely or more timeless. I, I can't remember who to attribute the quote to, but like, I think I marked in, I remember Mark Andreessen quoting somebody else. It's like, there's two ways to make money, bundling and unbundling. And like the same is true of content, right? Like I have bundled books into blog posts. I've bundled blog posts into books and I've created value. I think learned a lot and found really happy readers and customers on both versions of that. And I, I think that's a cool thing. And like, I don't know shit about video, but if you do like to your point on your YouTube story, like I think there's a, there's a lot of value to be created there. Like the farther you have to transform it, probably the more value there is, even between platforms. Absolutely, and I, um, I, I think basically, unless you're like Gary Vaynerchuk and you have thirty, you know, media producers working just on your personal brand, there's no one who actually is hitting every single platform. So someone could have yeah. the YouTube 
uh, newsletter book presence. But if you made a TikTok account about them, there's probably an opportunity there, and you know, vice versa. It's it's, it's really honestly like a form of arbitrage that mm-hmm. one you know could apply to the investing world, just kind of applied to the world of media and content. Absolutely. And, it, and it's like hard work to do all of those things and to do all of them well. Each platform has its own little nuance of like, I'm not probably very good at writing stuff on LinkedIn, but I kind of like a lazily post on LinkedIn, but I'm very like fluent in Twitter. Um, but even though like there's obvious opportunities to transform even within my own that I'm not doing, like I don't post a thread for every podcast episode that I do of like what has come out. I would love Maybe I should be like paying somebody to do that or like asking someone to do it even. But um, and I just started sort of moving my stuff over to YouTube. But like there's just so many opportunities and so many platforms and so many nuances between the platforms of their own little languages or quirks. Um, you know, Jack Butcher, one of his recommendations to people kind of starting out is like, just get really, really good at one platform. Like, don't try to do everything. Don't worry about getting all of them like let other people arbitrage that's part of the system and it's a beautiful thing and you can't be good at everything anyway so like just focus and try to keep keep going did he do the the images in the book oh i did not know that because i was looking at these like these look like jack butcher i don't know if like you you know took his course or what what it was but that's funny that no he uh, was man he reached out like when I was tweeting about it, he's like, Hey, I've done a bunch of illustrations about Naval. Like if you want to use them for the book, like that would be, that'd be awesome. I was like, these are incredible. Um, you are a genius. And in the time that I was like trying to finish writing the book, Jack was like applying all the lessons from the tweet storm and has built, you know, an incredible business. Um, he's an amazing case study. I mean, you can read the book and if you're struggling to figure out how to apply it, like go look at what Jack has done and built. Um, it's remarkable. Yeah, we, we did an interview with Jack in the course, actually, trying to kind of plot his like increased scopes of leverage over over time. It's an amazing story. Awesome. Yeah, well, we're going to link that for folks, make sure that they can check that out. But uh, before we aim towards wrapping up, Eric, uh, we've referenced uh, investing a couple of times. You referenced wanting mm-hmm. to invest in startups. Um, AngelList, Naval's company, has yep. rolled out uh, the concept of rolling funds, which is basically drastically reducing the administrative burden for uh, kind of, you know, small, I, I not small, but seed stage funds, mm-hmm. angel investing funds for folks to be able to deploy with the kind of minimal, um, you know, barrier to entry. Can you talk a little bit first just about how that works within the Angelus platform that Naval built and mm-hmm. then how you're utilizing it? Yeah, Angelus has done a lot to make it a lot easier for people to invest or to manage funds. Um, this particular thing, innovation and the thing that we use called rolling funds um, basically let you like the traditional thing was like a GP general partner would have to go out and spend like a year or two getting a bunch of people to commit to writing a huge check all at once. Um, and then if he got, you know, $20 million worth of commitments, they could go start a fund that would cover the legal paperwork. Then they'd go collect all the money. Then they'd spend two years deploying all the money and then they would go back and do it again. And rolling funds basically makes that whole process really liquid and consistent. So every quarter, they basically automatically start a new fund for us. And people, uh, investors are subscribed. They've basically pre-committed like, all right, we'll do, you know, 10 grand this quarter, 10 grand next quarter, 10 grand next quarter. Um, so it's very consistent. Uh, they call them capital calls on the investor side. And we on our side can always be raising money and always be 
deploying money, writing checks to startups. And every quarter there's sort of, you know, a new, a slightly new mix of LPs and every quarter there's new capital to invest in startups. Um, and we can just kind of grow this snowball more organically and more reasonably, and then update LPs on the companies that we invested in and, um, and go on to the next quarter. And it's been, Angelus is amazing to work with. The infrastructure that they've built to do all of this is really incredible. Um, and we would never have been, you know, we, me and my partners, Al and Bo, were all just angel investing for our own personal money and um, doing relatively well at it. And like, but we were never going to become full-time traditional fund managers. We're just kind of our friends start companies and our audience sends us deals. And um, it's a beautiful thing. But, you know, if we could write a $100,000 check with some investor money included and make, make money with people, with our audience, rather than just by ourselves, um, it's better for us and it's better for the startups to get a $100,000 check instead of a $10,000 check from from one person. So um, Angelus has made all of that really easy and low overhead and I'm, I'm grateful for it. And it's just hilariously like full circle that, you know, I, I wrote this book about Naval, learned all about Naval, learned how Angelus got started and then started using it to run a fund. And I found out after we'd started the fund that I'm the same age that Naval was when he started his first fund that like invested in Uber. It was, uh, I think it was called Hitforge, but like, yeah, that invested in Uber and Twitter and sort of kicked off his angel uh, investing career and VC career. Um, so I'm just like chuckle at the osmosis uh, like of, of what it happens when you spend, you know, four years just immersed in somebody's material and thinking. You just, I just kind of started emulating the path without even really thinking about it consciously. Absolutely. And I mean, that really is in, ter in terms of uh, an example of leverage there. You already had the deal flow. You already had the relationships. You already had, had you know, worked in your own startup and mm -hmm. it's just finding way to not only have greater impact, but if you were, you know, competent and, and well-liked and respected enough to get into that deal, increase the upside, increase the lever that that um, opportunity presents. Yeah, I, I would like to say it's you know it's not more effort than adding a zero to the check. It it hundred percent is a more effort, but it is definitely worth it from a leverage perspective. Um, and and it's rewarding to see friends and readers and stuff come out of the woodwork and say like, hey, yeah, please invest my money in some of these startups. And I think I think we're gonna make some people some money. I hope um, startup investing is is very risky and uncertain and highly liquid. And you know you must be accredited and. It, it it is a it is a tough game, um, but uh, I'm I'm excited about it, and it's been fun and rewarding so far to kind of do it at a little bit of a higher level, and more yeah. often too. We get to yeah, we get to write a lot more checks than we used to, which is which is fun. You get to learn about more companies, meet more founders. Yeah, that's I mean that's another leverage from like an information diet standpoint is just getting the investor mm -hmm. updates and and actually paying you know that fine attention when you actually have skin in the game with the company. Yeah, you get a lot more context. You get a lot more opportunity. I was just—I just recorded a podcast with uh, our second podcast with Alan Bo. So we do like GP podcasts where we talk about the ideas, the the deals that we're looking at, and why we passed on stuff, and uh, you know what we're adding to the fund, and what investors are actually in, and um, it, we try to be a little more transparent than average. So if people are like trying to learn how to invest on their own, or um, just see what it's like to kind of do this more often or want to see the companies that we're doing they can they can check out our um our episodes but we were just talking about this for like it's kind of easier to be an individual angel investor because you get like one or two deals sent to you a month or a quarter and you're just kind of like it's either good enough or it's not good enough and if it's good enough you write the check and now we're sitting at this deal this point where we're like looking at 
you know, we like 10 or 12 companies. We're like, these are all investable. These are all good opportunities, but like, we only got two checks to write. Like we gotta, we gotta let some, some healthy fish go here and like, you know, put chips on the ones that we really think are the highest, highest return. Um, and that's hard in a different way than investing your own money. And it's hard when you know you've got, you know, dozens of LPs with, with meaningful investments with you. Um, but uh, it's, it's more rewarding too and exciting to see that, you know, high opportunity cost is a good sign, right? Like you, you want the pain of high opportunity cost when you're looking at building a portfolio. Absolutely. All right, Eric, we've got four questions left. Um, before we wrap up with the kind of standard ones, uh, there is a little anecdote that I want more details on. You received a cease and desist letter from Craigslist uh -oh. for some frowned upon <laughs> marketing techniques early in your career. Please elaborate. There was like an era of, of Silicon Valley where, or San Francisco, I guess, this was like circa 2011, where Craigslist was still huge and like the main way that people found each other like facebook marketplace didn't exist classifieds are still huge and there were like i mean Air airbnb is probably the case study of this like they're i don't know if the blog posts are still up but like they wrote an engine that would basically repost you could go in as an airbnb host and go through like a two-click process and it would cross post your airbnb listing onto craigslist then anybody who was using Craigslist would like click back. And if they wanted to stay there, they would have to onboard onto Airbnb. And it was like this wildly successful growth hack um, that they had created. And there were a few companies that were kind of trying to do this in their own way. And we were one of them. Uh, we, Zarly at the time, which was, was my company. Um, and of course, Craigslist like does not really want companies to do this, but we, we figured out a way to do it at a rate that they were unhappy with. And eventually they, 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 it was part of a whole swath of, you know, I think their legal team went through and just, you know, did like, all right, let's just get all clear, clear the street, get the kids off the street, like sent a bunch of these out at once um, and lost access. But it was a pretty well refined system um, across a couple different companies by the time, by the time Craigslist uh, shut it down. But um, yeah, it was, it was interesting. You see, like, I don't know what the equivalent, uh, growth hack would be today um but there's, there's probably someone very cleverly like dropping nfts with like instructions into a bunch of wallets or something like that but there's always something that's kind of like bending the rules um clever distribution something and uh yeah it, but i learned a lot uh in doing so you know so dropping vpns and burner phones and learn to like work with outsourcers and track ips and it was it was it was an education it was good Good stuff. Well, we're going to aim towards wrapping up and ask our standard last two questions. But before we do that, anything else you're hoping to share today that I did not give you a chance to? Oh, you told me there were four questions. Now I feel like we're skipping stuff, but well, whatever. Those, you, you... We're two down. We're two oh, down. Okay. All right. All right. Bring, them, bring them on. You're, you're in charge. You're the ringmaster. I'm just the elephant. Let's, let's, let's do it. Whatever. Right on. So uh, this has been fantastic. I want to make sure that people can check out all the stuff that you are up to, some of the levers that you have built for yourself, uh, some we've referenced obviously already uh, mm -hmm. during the course of the interview. What digital coordinates can we provide for people that want to learn more? Ejorgensen.com. Uh, everything will fall out from there. You'll find me on Twitter. You'll find the podcast. You'll find the blog. You'll find the book. You'll find the fund. Like Everything comes from there. Right on. And I got, a, wanna... I got a newsletter there too. So if people want to check out the book again, it is the Al Almanac of Naval Ravikant. Good, really good stuff. Highly recommend it. 
Um, we'll link that in the show notes for everyone that wants to find it. But before we let you go, Eric, I'd like to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable challenge to the audience. Yeah, I mean, we talked about leverage a bunch and I just I feel like it's easy to kind of like listen and nod and not do anything about it. So um, I it is it might be something that's already on your to do list, but like do it, do something to build your personal leverage with intent, um, whether that's adding a Zapier thing or investing some money or setting up an auto withdrawal or your 401k or whatever, like figure out some high leverage action uh, to take and take it. Um, I have a blog post called 50 first levers, um, that has a ton of those ideas. That is just a bunch of things that people who start the course, um, use as their first lever. This is one of the first things we do in the course is like take action immediately, start that positive feedback loop of like, Oh shit, that was a great investment of time. I like thinking like this. Um, so yeah, put, put your brain to work on one of those. Um, that blog post has a bunch of good ideas to, to get started. And, um, I hope you catch the bug the way I have because it's uh, changed my life for the better, for sure. Fantastic. Um, we're going to link that in the show notes to the 51st Levers blog post. And uh, it's something that I, you know, in a similar way, I've got a small amount of the snowball rolling. There's a couple employees at the company, um, you know, we're, we're making investments, doing other things like that, not quite to the scale that you guys are at. But I can tell, I can agree with the sentiment that it is pretty addictive once you start to see the benefits accrue and then your imagination, yeah. you know, looks at the end point of, wow, this could really be something. Man, you got 500 blog posts or 500 podcast episodes out. Like that is a huge thing. And I imagine you, you, uh, look at the the chart of listeners and the compounding graph of having um all of the media that you have out there working for you like i i, I think about we have we use um a bunch of metaphors in the course like this and i think of podcasts and videos as like creating these really thin digital clones um yep. that are like very purpose specific they can operate this one conversation they can replay this for you and you just you have this army of digital errands out there like working for you um and providing value to, to other people and i think it's awesome and um it's super super rewarding to kind of look over that and to do the work where you know every day you're gonna you know add another another one to your army every week and it's it's just cool to see that wall get built brick by brick a hundred percent and when we help clients with it that's always like one of the unlocks for them of mm -hmm. you know they're like, well, what am I going to talk about after like the, the fourth video that we would make? It's like, well, you probably have more than like four canned lines that you've used to build your business as like a salesperson. Oh, what yeah. if we just replicated those? And I'm going to use that a thin clone of yeah. you just making that point yet again, so that that can go work on your behalf and you can go do something else. This, this is one of my, the 10 laws of leverage. Don't repeat yourself, record yourself. Boom. Powerful notes to wrap up on Eric. <laughs> this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. Thank you, Aaron. I appreciate you having me. We just went deep with Eric Jorgensen. Hope you're not there. Has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you for listening to the end of my conversation with Eric. If you enjoyed it, I would like to refer you to one of our very early episodes more than four years ago with Taylor Pearson. Taylor also launched a new chapter of his career by writing a book called The End of Jobs, which was fantastic. And today he is the co-founder of an investment firm called The Mutiny Fund that focuses on trading options and volatility. Both Taylor and Eric represent how a season of exceptionally hard work and focus can open all sorts of new opportunities for someone in their career arc. And I think that you're going to take a lot away from that as well. Check that out and hit subscribe because we've got some great episodes coming soon. Thanks for listening. 
Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.